metaphor, the elements of spring. A habitation for dragons and a court for owls. Isaiah chapter 34. Spring, in its season, came like a fever. It was as though the island shifted and turned uneasily in the warm, wet bed of winter and then suddenly and vibrantly was fully awake, stirring with life under a sky as blue as a hyacinth bud into which a sun would rise wrapped in a mist as fragile and as delicately yellow as a newly completed silkworm cocoon. For me, spring was one of the best times, for all the animal life of the island was astir and the air full of hope. Maybe today I would catch the biggest terrapin I had ever seen, or fathom the mystery of how a baby tortoise, emerging from its egg as crushed and wrinkled as a walnut, would within an hour have swelled to twice its size and have smoothed out most of its wrinkles in consequence. The whole island was a bustle and a ringing with sound. I would awake early, breakfast hurriedly under the tangerine trees already fragrant with the warmth of the early sun, gather my nets and collecting boxes, whistle for Roger, Whittle and Puke, and set off to explore my kingdom. Up in the hills, in the miniature forests of heather and broom, where the sun-warmed rocks were embossed with the strange lichens like ancient seals, the tortoises would be emerging from their winter sleep, pushing aside the earth under which they'd slept, and jerking slowly out into the sun, blinking and gulping. They would rest until the sun had warmed them, and then would slowly move off towards the first meal of clover or dandelion, or maybe a fat white puffball. Like other parts of my territory, I had the tortoise hills well organised. Each tortoise possessed a number of distinguishing marks, so that I could follow its progress. Each nest of stone chats or black caps was carefully marked, so that I could watch progress as was each papery mound of mantis eggs, each spider's web and each rock under which lurked some beast dear to me. But it was the heavy emergence of the tortoises that would really tell me that spring had started, for it was not until winter was truly over that they lumbered forth in search of mates, cumbersome and heavily armoured as any medieval knight in search of a damsel to succour. Having once satisfied their hunger, they became more alert, if such a word can be used to describe a tortoise. The males walked on their toes, their necks stretched out to the fullest extent, and at intervals they would pause and utter an astonishing, loud and imperative yap. I never heard a female answer this ringing, Pekingese-like cry, but by some means the male would track her down and then, still yapping, do battle with her, crashing his shell against hers, trying to bludgeon her into submission, while she, undeterred, would try to go on feeding in between the bouts of buffeting. So the hills would resound to the yaps and slithering crashes of the mating tortoises, and the stone chats steady tap, tap, like a miniature quarry at work the cries of the pink-breasted chaffinches like tiny rhythmic drops of water falling into a pool, and the gay wheezing song of the goldfinches as they tumbled through the yellow broom like multicoloured clowns. Down below the tortoise hills, below the old olive groves filled with wine-red anemones, asphodels and pink cyclamen, where the magpies made their nests and the jays would startle you with their sudden harsh despairing scream, lay the old Venetian salt pans spread out like a chessboard. Each field, some only the size of a small room, was bounded by wide, shallow, muddy canals of brackish water. It consisted of a little jungle of vines, maize, fig trees, tomatoes as acrid-smelling as stink bugs, watermelons like the huge green eggs of some mythical bird, 
trees of cherry, plum, apricot and loquat, strawberry plants and sweet potatoes, all forming the larder of the island. On the seaward side, each brackish canal was fringed with cane brakes and reed beds, sharply pointed as an army of pikes, but inland, where the streams fell from the olive groves into the canals and the water was sweet, you got lush plant growth and the placid canals were emblazoned with water lilies and fringed with golden kingcups. It was here that in the spring the two species of terrapin, one black with gold spots and one pinstriped delicately with grey, would whistle shrilly almost like birds as they pursued their mates. The frogs, green and brown with leopard-patched thighs, looked as though they were freshly varnished. They would clasp each other with passionate pop-eyed fervour, or gurk, an endless chorus, and lay great cumulus clouds of grey spawn in the water. In places where the canals were bordered by shade-giving cane brakes, fig and other fruit trees, the diminutive tree frogs, vivid green, with skin as soft as a damp chamois leather, would puff up their little yellow throat pouches to the size of walnuts and croak in a monotonous tenor voice. In the water, where the pigtails of weed moved and undulated gently in the baby currents, the tree frog's spawn would be laid in yellowish lumps the size of a small plum. Along one side of the fields lay a flat grassland area which, with the spring rains, would be inundated and turned into a large shallow lake some four inches deep, lined with grass. Here, in this warm water, the newts would assemble, hazelnut brown with yellow bellies. A male would take up his station facing the female, tail curved round, and then, with a look of almost laughable concentration on his face, he would wag his tail ferociously, ejaculating sperm and wafting it towards the female. She, in her turn, would place the fertilised egg, white and almost as transparent as the water, yolk black and shining as an ant, onto a leaf, and then with her hind legs, bend the leaf and stick it so that the egg was encased. In spring, the herds of strange cattle would appear to graze on this drowned lake. Huge chocolate-coloured animals with massive backward-slanting horns as white as mushrooms, they looked like the Ancole cattle from the centre of Africa, but they must have been brought from somewhere nearer, Persia or Egypt, perhaps. They were tended by strange, wild, gypsy-like bands, who in long, low, horse-drawn wagons would camp by the grazing area. The savage-looking men, duskies, crows, and the handsome women and girls with velvet-black eyes and hair like moleskin would sit gossiping or basket-making round the fire, speaking a language I could not understand while the raggedly dressed boys, thin and brown, jay shrill and jackal suspicious, would act as herdsmen. The great beasts' horns would clack and rattle together like musketry as they barged each other out of the way in their eagerness to feed. The sweet cattle smell of their brown coats lingered in the warm air after them like the scent of flowers. One day the grazing area would be empty, the next day, as if they'd always been there, there would be the jumbled encampment caught in a perpetual spider's web of smoke from its pink glittering fires, and the herds of cattle moving slowly through the shallow water, their probing tearing mouths and splashing hooves frightening the newts and sending the frogs and baby terrapins off in panic-stricken flight at this mammoth invasion. I greatly coveted one of these huge brown cattle, but I knew that my family would not under any circumstances allow me to have anything so large and fierce-looking no matter how much I pleaded that they were so tame that they were herded by mere toddlers of six or seven. The nearest I got to possessing one of these animals was quite close enough so far as the family was concerned. 
I had been down in the fields just after the gypsies had killed a bull. The still bloody hide was stretched out and a group of girls were scraping it with knives and rubbing wood ash into it. Nearby was piled its gory, dismembered carcass, already shining and humming with flies, and next to it was the massive head, the fringed ears lying back, the eyes half-closed as if musing, a trickle of blood from one nostril. The sweeping white horns were some four feet long and as thick as my thigh, and I gazed at them longingly, as covetous as any early big-game hunter. It would be impractical, I decided, to buy the whole head. Even though I was convinced of my mastery of the art of taxidermy, the family did not share this belief. Besides, there had recently been an unpleasantness over a dead turtle I had unthinkingly dissected on the veranda, and so everyone was inclined to view my interest in anatomy with a jaundiced eye. It was a pity, really, for the bull's head, carefully mounted, would have looked magnificent over the door of my bedroom, and it would have been the piece de resistance of my collection, surpassing even my stuffed flying fish and my almost complete goat skeleton. However, knowing how implacable my family could be, I decided reluctantly I would have to settle for the horns. After a spirited piece of bargaining, the gypsies knew enough Greek for that, I purchased the horns for ten drachmas and my shirt. The absence of the shirt I explained to mother by saying I had ripped it so badly falling out of a tree that the remnants were not worth bringing back. Then, triumphantly, I carried the massive horns up to my room and spent the morning polishing them, nailing them to a plaque of wood, and then hanging the whole thing with great care on a hook over my door. I stood back to admire the effect, and at that moment heard Leslie's voice raised in anger. "'Jerry!' he shouted. "'Jerry, where are you?' I remembered that I'd borrowed a tin of gun oil from his room to polish the horns with, meaning to restore it before he noticed, but before I could do anything... The door burst open, and he appeared belligerently. "'Jerry, have you got my bloody gun oil?' he inquired. The door, returning on the impetus of his entrance, swung back and slammed. My magnificent pair of horns leapt off the wall as if propelled by the ghost of the bull that had possessed them, and landed on top of Leslie's head, felling him as though he had been poleaxed. My first fear was that my beautiful horns might be broken. My second, that my brother might be dead. Both proved to be erroneous. My horns were intact, and my brother, his eyes still glazed, hoisted himself into a sitting position and stared at me. Christ, my head, he moaned, clasping his temples and rocking to and fro. Bloody hell! As much as to dilute his wrath as anything, I went in search of mother, I found her in her bedroom, brooding over the bed, which was covered with what appeared to be a library of knitting patterns. I explained that Leslie had been, as it were, accidentally gored by my horns. As usual, Mother looked upon the gloomy side, and was convinced that I had secreted a bull in my room which had disemboweled Leslie. Her relief at finding him sitting on the floor apparently intact was considerable, but tinged with annoyance. "'Leslie, dear, what have you been doing?' she asked. Leslie gazed up at her, his face slowly taking on the colour of a sun-mellowed plum. He had some difficulty in finding his voice. "'That bloody boy!' he said at last, in a sort of muted roar. "'He tried to brain me, hit me with a pair of sodding great deer horns!' "'Language, dear,' said Mother automatically. "'I'm sure he didn't mean to.' 
I said, no, I'd intended no harm. But in the interests of accuracy, I would point out that they were not deer horns, which were of a completely different shape, but the horns of a species of bull, which I had not as yet identified. I don't care what bleeding species it is, snarled Leslie. I don't care whether it's a bloody bastard brontosaurus horn. Leslie, dear, said Mother, it's quite unnecessary to swear so much. It is necessary, shouted Leslie, and if you'd been hit on the head by something like a whale's ribcage, you'd swear too. I started to explain that a whale's ribcage did not, in fact, resemble my horns in the least, but I was quelled by a terrible look from Leslie, and my anatomical lecture dried in my throat. "'Well, dear, you can't keep them over the door,' said Mother. "'It's a most dangerous place. You might have hit Larry.' My blood ran cold at the thought of Larry felled by the horns of my bull. "'You'll have to hang them somewhere else,' Mother continued. "'No,' said Leslie. "'If he must keep the bloody things, he's not to hang them up. Put them in a cupboard or somewhere.' Reluctantly, I accepted this restriction, and so my horns reposed on the window sill, doing no further damage than to fall regularly onto our maid Lugaretzia's foot every evening when she closed the shutters. But as she was a professional hypochondriac of no mean abilities, she enjoyed the bruises she sustained. But this incident put a blight on my relationship with Leslie for some time, which was the direct cause of my unwittingly arousing Larry's ire. Early in the spring, I had heard, echoing and booming from the reed beds around the salt pans, the strange roaring of a bittern. I was wildly excited about this, for I had never seen one of these birds, and I was hopeful that they would nest. But pinpointing the exact area in which the birds were operating was difficult, for the reed beds were extensive. However, by spending some considerable time perched in the higher branches of an olive tree on a hill commanding the reeds, I succeeded in narrowing down the field of search to an acre or two. Soon the bitterns stopped calling, and I felt sure they were nesting. I set off early one morning, leaving the dogs behind. I soon reached the fields and plunged into the reed beds, moving to and fro like a questing hound, refusing to be tempted away from my objective by the sudden ripple of a water snake, the clop of a jumping frog, or the tantalising dance of a newly hatched butterfly. Soon I was in the heart of the cool, rustling reeds, and I then found, to my consternation, that the area was so extensive and the reeds so high that I was completely lost. On every side I was surrounded by a fence of reeds, and their leaves made a flickering green canopy above me through which I could see the vivid blue sky. Being lost did not worry me, for I knew if I walked long enough in any direction I would hit the sea or the road, but what did worry me was that I could not be sure if I was searching the right area. I found some almonds in my pocket and sat down to eat them while I considered the problem. I had just eaten the last one and decided that my best course was to go back to the olive trees and re-establish my bearings, when I discovered that, without knowing it, I had been sitting within eight feet of a bittern for the last five minutes. He was standing there, stiff as a guardsman, his neck stretched up straight, his long greenish-brown beak pointing skywards while from each side of his narrow skull his dark protuberant eyes gazed at me with a fierce watchfulness. His body, pale fawn mottled with dark brown, merged into the shimmering shadow-flecked reeds perfectly, and to add to the illusion that he was part of the moving background, the bird swayed from side to side. I was enchanted, and sat watching him, hardly daring to breathe. 
Then there was a sudden commotion among the reeds, and the bittern abruptly stopped looking like a reed, and launched himself heavily into the air as Roger, with lolling tongue and eyes beaming with bonhomie, came crashing into view. I was torn between remonstrating with Roger for having frightened the bittern and praising him for his undoubted feat of having tracked me down by scent over a difficult route of about a mile and a half. However, Roger was obviously so delighted with his own achievement that I had not the heart to scold him. I found two almonds I had overlooked in my pocket and gave them to him as a reward. Then we set to work to search for the bittern's nest. We soon found it a neat pad of reeds with the first greenish egg lying in the cup. I was delighted and determined to keep a close watch on the nest to note the progress of the young. Then, carefully bending the reeds to mark the trail, I followed Roger's stumpy tail. He obviously had a much better sense of direction than I had, for within a hundred yards we'd reached the road, and Roger was shaking the water off his woolly coat and rolling in the fine dry white dust. As we left the road and made our way up the hillside through the olive grove, sparkling with light and shade, coloured with a hundred wild flowers, I stopped to pick some, some anemones for mother. While I gathered the wine-coloured flowers, I brooded on the problem of the bitterns. When the hen-bird had reared her brood to the stage when they were fully feathered, I would dearly have liked to kidnap two and add them to my not inconsiderable menagerie. The trouble was the fish bill for my present creatures a black-backed gull, twenty-four terrapins and eight water snakes, was considerable, and I felt that mother would view the addition of two hungry young bitterns with mixed feelings, to say the least. Pondering this problem, it was some time before I became aware that someone was piping an urgent beckoning call on a flute. I glanced down at the road below, and there was the rose beetle man. He was a strange itinerant peddler I frequently met on my expeditions through the olive groves. Slender, foxy-faced and dumb, he wore the most astonishing garb, a huge floppy hat to which were pinned many strings tied to glittering gold-green rose beetles. His clothes mended with many multicoloured bits of cloth so that it looked almost as though he were wearing a patchwork quilt. A great bright blue cravat completed his ensemble. On his back were bags and boxes, cages full of pigeons, and from his pockets he could produce anything from wooden flutes, carved animals or combs, to bits of the sacred robe of Saint Spiridion. One of his chief charms, as far as I was concerned, was that, being dumb, he had to rely on a remarkable ability for mimicry. He used his flute as his tongue. When he saw that he'd caught my attention, he took the flute from his mouth and beckoned. I hurried down the hill, for I knew that the rose beetle man sometimes had things of great interest. It was he, for example, who had got me the biggest clamshell in my collection and, moreover, with the two tiny parasitic pea crabs still inside. I stopped by him and said good morning. He smiled, showing discoloured teeth and doffing his floppy hat with an exaggerated bow, setting all the beetles that were tied to it buzzing sleepily on the end of their strings like a flock of captive emeralds. Presently, after inquiring after my health by leaning forward and peering questioningly and anxiously, wide-eyed, into my face, he told me that he was well by playing a rapid, gay, rippling tune on his flute and then drawing in great lungfuls of warm spring air and exhaling them, his eyes closed in ecstasy. Thus, having disposed of the courtesies, we got down to business. What, I inquired, did he want of me? 
He raised his flute to his lips, gave a plaintive, quavering hoot, prolonged and mournful, and then, taking the flute from his lips, opened his eyes wide and hissed, swaying from side to side and occasionally snapping his teeth together. As an imitation of an angry owl, it was so perfect that I almost expected the rose beetle man to fly away. My heart beat with excitement, for I had long wanted a mate for my scops owl, Ulysses, who spent his days sitting like a carved totem of olive wood above my bedroom window, and his nights decimating the mouse population around the villa. But when I asked him, the rose beetle man laughed to scorn my idea of anything so common as a scops owl. He removed the large cloth bag from the many bundles with which he was encumbered, opened it, and carefully tipped the contents at my feet. To say that I was struck speechless was putting it mildly, for there, in the white dust, tumbled three huge owlets, hissing and swaying and beak-cracking in what seemed to be a parody of the Rose Beetle Man, their tangerine golden eyes enormous with a mixture of rage and fear. They were baby eagle owls, and as such so rare as to be a prize almost beyond the dreams of avarice, I knew that I must have them. The fact that the acquisition of the three fat and voracious owls would send the meat bill up in the same way as the addition of the bitterns to my collection would have affected the fish bill was neither here nor there. Bitterns were things of the future which might or might not materialise, but the owls, like large greyish-white snowballs beak-clicking and rumbering in the dust, were solid fact. I squatted down by the owlets, and as I stroked them into a state of semi-somnolence, I bargained with the rose beetle man. He was a good bargainer, which made the whole thing much more interesting, but it was also very peaceful bargaining with him, for it was done in complete silence. We sat opposite one another like two great art connoisseurs at Agnews, haggling, say, over a trio of Rembrandts. The lift of a chin, the minutest inclination or half-shake of the head was sufficient, and there were long pauses during which the rose beetle man tried to undermine my determination with the aid of music and some indigestible nougat which he had in his pocket. But it was a buyer's market, and he knew it. Who else in the length and breadth of the island would be mad enough to buy not one, but three baby eagle owls? Eventually, the bargain was struck. As I was temporarily embarrassed financially, I explained to the rose beetle man that he would have to wait for payment until the beginning of next month when my pocket money was due. The rose beetle man had frequently been in this predicament himself, so he understood the situation perfectly. I would, I explained, leave the money with our mutual friend Yanni at the cafe on the crossroads where the rose beetle man could pick it up during one of his peregrinations across the countryside. Thus having dealt with the sordid commercial side of the transaction, we shared a stone bottle of ginger beer from the rose beetle man's capacious pack. Then I placed my precious owls carefully in their bag and continued on my way home, leaving the rose beetle man lying in the ditch among his wares and the spring flowers, playing on his flute. It was the lusty cries the owlets gave on the way back to the villa that suddenly brought home to me the culinary implications of my new acquisitions. It was obvious that the rose beetle man had not fed his charges. I did not know how long he'd had them, but judging from the noise they were making, they were extremely hungry. It was a pity, I reflected, that my relations with Leslie were still slightly strained, for otherwise I could have persuaded him to shoot some sparrows or perhaps a rat or two for my new babies. As it was, 
I could see I'd have to rely on my mother's unfailing kindness of heart. I found her ensconced in the kitchen, stirring frantically at a huge, aromatically bubbling cauldron, frowning at a cookbook in one hand, her spectacles misty, her lips moving silently as she read. I produced my owls with the air of one who is conferring a gift of inestimable value. My mother straightened her spectacles and glanced at the three hissing, swaying balls of down. "'Very nice, dear,' she said in an absent-minded tone of voice. "'Very nice.' Put them somewhere safe, won't you? I said that they would be incarcerated in my room and that nobody would know that I'd got them. That's right, said Mother, glancing nervously at the owls. You know how Larry feels about more pets. I did indeed, and I intended to keep their arrival a secret from him at all costs. There was just one minor problem, I explained, and that was that the owls were hungry, were, in fact, starving to death. "'Poor little things,' said Mother, her sympathies immediately aroused. "'Give them some bread and milk.' I explained that owls ate meat, and that I'd used up the last of my meat supply. Had Mother perhaps a fragment of meat that she could lend me so that the owls did not die? "'Well, I'm a bit short of meat,' said Mother. "'We're having chops for lunch. Go and see what's in the icebox.' I went to the massive icebox in the larder that contained our perishable foodstuffs, and peered into its icy, misty interior. All I could unearth were the ten chops for lunch, and even these were hardly meal enough for three voracious eagle owls. I went back with this news to the kitchen. "'Oh, dear,' said Mother, "'are you sure they won't eat bread and milk?' I was adamant. Owls would only eat meat. At that moment one of the babies swayed so violently he fell over and I was quick to point this out to Mother as an example of how weak they were getting. "'Well, I suppose you'd better take the chops, then,' said Mother, harassed. "'We'll just have to have vegetable curry for lunch.' Triumphantly, I carried the owls and the chops to my bedroom and stuffed the hungry babies full of meat. As a consequence of the owls' arrival, we sat down to lunch rather late. "'I'm sorry we're not earlier,' said Mother, uncovering a tureen and letting loose a cloud of curry-scented steam— but the potatoes wouldn't cook for some reason. "'I thought we were going to have chops,' complained Larry aggrievedly. "'I spent all morning getting my taste buds on tiptoe with the thought of chops. What happened to them?' "'I'm afraid it's the owls, dear,' said Mother apologetically. "'They have such huge appetites.' Larry paused, a spoonful of curry halfway to his mouth. "'Owls,' he said, staring at Mother. "'Owls?' "'What do you mean, owls? What owls?' "'Oh,' said Mother, flustered, having realised that she had just made a tactical error. Uh, "'Just owls. Birds, you know. Nothing to worry about.' "'Are we having a plague of owls?' Larry inquired. "'Are they attacking the larder and zooming out with bunches of chops in their talons?' Uh, "'No, no, dear. They're only babies. They wouldn't do that. They, they have the most beautiful eyes, and they were simply starving, poor little things.' "'I bet there's some new creatures of Jerry's,' said Leslie sourly. "'I heard him crooning to something before lunch.' "'Then he's got to release them,' barked Larry. "'I said I could not do this, as they were babies.' "'Only babies, dear,' said Mother placatingly. "'They can't help it.' "'What do you mean they can't help it?' said Larry. "'Damn things stuffed to the gills with my chops.' "'Our chops,' Margot interrupted. "'I don't know why you have to be so selfish. "'It's got to stop.' Larry went on, ignoring Margot. You indulged the boy too much. 
They're just as much our chops as yours, said Margot. Nonsense, dear, said Mother to Larry. You do exaggerate. After all, it's only some baby owls. Only, said Larry bitingly. He's already got one owl, and we know that to our cost. Ulysses is a very sweet bird and no trouble, put in Mother defensively. Well, he might be sweet to you, said Larry, but he hasn't come and vomited up all the bits of food he has no further use for all over your bed. That was a long time ago, dear, and he hasn't done it again. And what's it got to do with our chops, anyway? asked Margot. It's not only owls, said Larry, though God knows if this goes on we'll start to look like a feeny. You don't seem to have any control over him. Look at that business with the turtle last week. That was a mistake, dear. He didn't mean any harm. A mistake, said Larry witheringly. He disembowelled the bloody thing all over the veranda. My room smelled like the interior of Captain Ahab's boat. It's taken me a week, and the expenditure of about five hundred gallons of eau de cologne to freshen it up to the extent where I can enter it without fainting. We smelled it just as much as you did, said Margot indignantly. Anyone would think you were the only one to smell it. Yes, explained Leslie. It smelled worse in my room. I had to sleep out on the back veranda. I don't know why you think you're the only one who ever suffers. I don't, said Larry witheringly. I'm just not interested in the suffering of lesser beings. The trouble with you is that you're selfish, said Margot, clinging to her original diagnosis. All right, snapped Larry. Don't listen to me. You'll all complain soon enough when your beds are waist-deep in owl vomit. I shall go and stay in a hotel. I think we've talked quite enough about the owls, said Mother firmly. Who's going to be in for tea? It transpired that we were all going to be in for tea. I'm making some scones, said Mother and sighs of satisfaction ran around the table for mother's scones, wearing cloaks of homemade strawberry jam, butter and cream, were a delicacy all of us adored. Mrs Varudakis is coming to tea, so I want you to behave, mother went on. Larry groaned. Who the hell is Mrs Varudakis, he asked. Some old bore, I suppose. Now don't start, said mother severely. She sounds a very nice woman. She wrote me such a nice letter, she wants my advice. What on? asked Larry. Well, she's very distressed by the way the peasants keep their animals. You know how thin the dogs and cats are, and those poor donkeys with sores that we see. Well, she wants to start a society for the elimination of cruelty to animals here in Corfu, rather like the RSPCA, you know, and she wants us to help her. Well, she doesn't get my help, said Larry firmly. I'm not helping any society to prevent cruelty to animals. I'd help them to promote cruelty. Now, Larry, don't say things like that, said Mother severely. You know you don't mean it. Of course I do, said Larry. And if this Varudakis woman spent a week in this house, she'd feel the same. She'd go round strangling owls with her bare hands, if only to survive. Well, I want you all to be polite, said Mother firmly, adding, And you're not to mention owls, Larry. She might think we're peculiar. We are, concluded Larry, with feeling. After lunch, I discovered that Larry, as he so often did, had alienated the two people who might have been his allies in his anti-owl campaign, Margot and Leslie. Margot, on seeing the owlets, went into raptures. She had just acquired the art of knitting, and with lavish generosity offered to knit anything I wanted for the owls. I toyed with the idea of having them all dressed in identical striped pullovers, but discarded this as impractical and reluctantly refused the kind suggestion. Leslie's offer of help was more practical. He said he would shoot a supply of sparrows for me. 
I asked whether he could do this every day. Well, not every day, said Leslie. I might not be here, I might be in town or something, but I will when I can. I suggested that he might do some bulk shooting for me, procuring enough sparrows to last me a week, perhaps. Oh, that's a good idea, said Leslie, struck by this. You work out how many you need for the week and I'll get them for you. Laboriously, for mathematics was not my strong point, I worked out how many sparrows, supplemented with meat, I would need for a week, and took the result to Leslie in his room, where he was cleaning the latest addition to his collection, a magnificent old Turkish muzzle-loader. Yes, OK, he said, looking at my figures. I'll get them for you. I'd better use the air rifle. If I use the shotgun, we'll have bloody Larry complaining about the noise. So, armed with the air rifle and a large paper bag, we went round the back of the villa. Leslie loaded the gun, leaned back against the trunk of an olive tree, and started shooting. It was as simple as target shooting, for that year we had a plague of sparrows and the roof of the villa was thick with them. As they were picked off by Leslie's excellent marksmanship, they rolled down the roof and fell to the ground where I would collect them and put them in my paper bag. After the first few shots, the sparrows grew a little uneasy and retreated higher up until they were sitting on the apex of the roof. Here Leslie could still shoot them, but they were precipitated over the edge of the roof and rolled down to fall on the veranda on the other side of the house. "'Wait until I shoot a few more before you collect them,' said Leslie, and so I dutifully waited. He continued shooting for some time, rarely missing, and the faint thunk of the rifle coincided with the collapse and disappearance of a sparrow from the rooftop. "'Damn,' he said suddenly. "'I've lost count. How many's that?' I said that I hadn't been counting either. "'Well, go and pick up the ones on the veranda and wait there. I'll pick off another six. That should do you.' Clasping my paper bag, I went around to the front of the house and saw, to my consternation, that Mrs. Varudakis, whom we'd forgotten, had arrived for tea. She and Mother were sitting somewhat stiffly on the veranda, clasping cups of tea, surrounded by the blood-stained corpses of numerous sparrows. Yes, Mother was saying, obviously hoping that Mrs. Varudakis had not noticed the rain of dead birds. Yes, we're all great animal lovers. I hear this said Mrs. Varudakis, smiling benevolently. I hear you love the animals like me. Oh, yes, said Mother. We keep so many pets. Animals are a sort of passion with us, you know. She smiled nervously at Mrs. Varudakis, and at that moment a dead sparrow fell into the strawberry jam. It was impossible to cover it up, and equally impossible to pretend it was not there. Mother stared at it as though hypnotised. At last she moistened her lips and smiled at Mrs. Varudakis, who was sitting with her cup poised, a look of horror on her space. A sparrow, Mother pointed out weakly. They, er, uh, seem to be dying a lot this year. At that moment, Leslie, carrying the air rifle, strode out of the house. Have I killed enough? he inquired. The next ten minutes were fraught with emotion. Mrs. Varudakis said she had never been so upset in her life, and that we were all fiends in human shape. Mother kept saying that she was sure Leslie had not meant to cause offence, and that, anyway, she was sure the sparrows had not suffered. Leslie, loudly and belligerently, went on repeating that it was a lot of bloody fuss about nothing, and anyway, owls ate sparrows, and did Mrs. Varudakis want the owls to starve, eh? But Mrs. Varudakis refused to be comforted. She wrapped herself, a tragic and outraged figure, in her cloak, 
shudderingly picked her way through the sparrow's corpses, got into her cab and was driven away through the olive groves at a brisk trot. "'I do wish you children wouldn't do things like that,' said Mother, shakily pouring herself a cup of tea while I picked up the sparrows. "'It really was most... careless of you, Leslie.' "'Well, how was I to know the old fool's out here?' said Leslie indignantly. "'I can't be expected to see through the house, can I?' "'You should be more careful, dear,' said Mother. "'Heaven knows what she must think of us.' "'She thinks we're savages,' said Leslie, chuckling. "'She said so. She's no loss, silly old fool.' "'Well, the whole thing's given me a headache. Go and ask Lugaretia to make some more tea, Jerry, will you?' Two pots of tea and several aspirins later, Mother was beginning to feel better. I was sitting on the veranda giving her a lecture on owls, to which she was only half listening, saying, "'Yes, dear, how interesting,' at intervals, when she was suddenly galvanised by a roar of rage from inside the villa. "'Oh, dear, I can't stand it,' she moaned. "'Now what's the matter?' Larry strode out onto the veranda. "'Mother!' he shouted. "'This has got to stop. I won't put up with it.' "'Now, now, dear, don't shout. What's the matter?' mother inquired. It's like living in a bloody natural history museum. What is, dear? This is. Life here. It's intolerable. I won't put up with it, shouted Larry. But what's the matter, dear? mother asked, bewildered. I go to get myself a drink from the icebox, and what do I find? What do you find, dear? asked mother with interest. Sparrows! bellowed Larry. Bloody great bags of superating unhygienic sparrows. It was not my day.